0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, You, Inc., Own Your Business,
1: Own Your Life Through Network Marketing. And the author, Rosie Bank. And Rosie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Rosie.
2: Hello, Steve. How are you today?
1: Well, an interesting title, You, Inc., It really sets the stage to talk about network marketing and I want to read what you have written in general about what your book is about and then we'll get into the details. You say this, I wrote this book in an earnest attempt to explain as much as I could about network marketing from my experience in the hope that others may benefit from what I've learned. u Inc. is structured as a guide aimed toward achieving two goals. First, If you seek to profit from being your own boss, you may discover a pathway here to lead you to fulfilling your goals and dreams. And second, if you come to network marketing as a skeptic, perhaps the experience and coaching offered in this book will help open your mind. So with that in mind, Rosie, with all the books that have been written about network marketing, why write another book?
2: Steve, I actually feel that I have a mission and a message. I've been an entrepreneur since 1973. I've always worked for myself since before, during, and after university and graduate school. And my second career in network marketing that began in 1999 has been an amazing journey. And I've read hundreds of books on network marketing. And I asked myself after 10 years in the field if I had a message that perhaps others had not relayed. I have friends in the field who have written books. My colleagues have written books. And I felt that there was something that hadn't been addressed. And because my previous career was completely in the field related to personal development, I thought I could address this in a way that was unique and also, Steve, essential for anyone in this field or considering this industry. So I chose to dig in to the personal growth because when people come to network marketing, for example, who want to achieve financial freedom, the average person is going to have to do some major rearranging of his beliefs about himself, about money, and about work, in order to achieve that significant milestone. So I wrote the book to help guide people through the steps toward not only their outer success, but also how to navigate the inner terrain because I think success is not only what you do, but it's whom you become.
1: Well, that is said so well. And there's many who have endorsed your book already. I see some names here that I'm familiar with. Uh, Brian Tracy, author of Maximum Achievement, says this book will quickly take you from frustration to success in building your own network marketing business. It is loaded with practical ideas to help you sell more and recruit faster than ever before. So you're going really centering on... Who you become, that's, that's really the key to success.
2: Yes, it's called the inner game, Steve.
1: The inner and game.
2: The inner game, yes. It has to do with beliefs and attitudes. Our, our self-talk is huge. I was working with a partner today who is doing all the action items, and where he's getting hung up is in the self-talk. What we tell ourselves, what we entrepreneurs tell ourselves when we go to work determines a lot about the results that we produce. So what people believe they deserve, who people believe they can become, whether people have beliefs about, well, she might deserve this, but I don't. Can you imagine trying to achieve financial freedom if someone is talking herself out of it every day, Steve? And that happens a lot. And then people go away and they say network marketing doesn't work. Well, that's not fair to the industry or to the associates who may not have been trained on the importance
1: of the inner game well all that you're saying and giving for advice to be successful in network marketing seems to uh, add up to me when you look at america and you look at the free enterprise system their network marketing or home business is probably the essence the 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 real fine uh, building block of america because it's people being in business for themselves
2: Yes, and especially at this time. Steve, I wish I could tell you, in fact, I will tell you, the demographics of people who have come to work in the organization have changed dramatically since the change in the economy, and I address that in the book. There are attorneys and physicians and audiologists and CEOs who are looking up for solutions because when their jobs or their industries have flattened out or in some cases dried up, Network marketing has emerged as a solution for professional people who still want to be in control. I think the timing of this book is perfect. I wrote it during the Great Recession, and now that we, some are, some may argue whether we've landed on our feet or not, Steve, That's a, that's a personal opinion, but there are people who are still out of work who are looking for solutions, and I think when someone extends a hand and says, there is still, You can still have a shot at financial freedom, even in this economy. There, there is definitely a movement, I think, that we're going to look back at this time as the era when network marketing came to full-fledged existence.
1: In part one of your book, you have a chapter that's titled, Your Dream, Too Big is Just the Right Size. Explain what you mean by that.
2: Sure. Steve, I think that one of the hallmarks of personal development is knowing what you want. I think it's easy to drift through life. I think it takes a person with courage and determination to take a stand on what he or she really wants his life to be about. There's a conversation in network marketing that goes something like this. What would you do if the restraints of time and finances were lifted? It's not a line item that people can selectively say, I don't have to answer that one. No, people must answer it. And we recommend what I love to call, Steve, big, fat, juicy dreams, the kind that make you stretch, the kind that make you have to think differently about yourself. And most importantly, because we encourage people to blow the dust off dreams that they may have thought were unattainable, when you have a team to support you and encourage you, And when you are leveraged because of the tiered distribution and the tiered compensation network marketing, suddenly more things are attainable. And we want people to think outside the box and to reach further because we believe the mechanics of this business model supports that.
1: Well, people are going to continue to buy goods and services. It's just a matter of where they get them, right? Right.
2: Yes, well, especially in the wellness industry, uh, people are still going to wash their hair and take vitamins and um, put body lotion on. Or if it's another field, when you find goods and services that people need every day, getting them from a distributor can be a very good choice for the consumer.
1: You say this, my kids have never seen me get fired or laid off. They have never heard me complain about a boss or unfair wages. We have always vacationed when we wanted to. I never had to get permission to take a day off, and I was typically in my home office when they returned from school in the afternoon. I consider myself a messenger from the world of business ownership.
2: What a happy story that is. <laughs> <laughs> Was, <laughs> that is
1: a happy story. <laughs> yeah, that's,
2: that's been me, Steve. I've I've been on my own since 1973. However, I have to say that when I became involved in network marketing in 1999, the feeling of being on my own went away. And I remember, Steve, years ago, way before I got involved in network marketing, hearing myself say the following words. I want to be connected to and supported by something that's bigger than me, but that includes me. And I found it in network marketing. So, have you ever heard the term solopreneur or micro, micropreneur? These are nicknames for entrepreneurs.
3: Right, I in love
2: it. For our, it. Yeah, I love it too. In business for ourselves, but in network marketing, that feeling of being on my own went away because of the support of having a team that's worth the price of admission by the way steve
1: and of course we all know t-e-a-m what that means
2: yep there's no i in team
1: that's right it's what is it together everyone achieves more
2: together everyone achieves more together everyone earns more they're great acronyms yes
1: correct correct well I'm going to quote Jim Rohn here, how to live a successful life. You already have said it, but let's say it from Jim. Success is not to be pursued. It is to be attracted by the person you become. Attracted to people really, really, uh, is it that easy?
2: I think that's a quote from my book. What a great question. Is it easy? Steve, is it easy to become the person whom others turn to for guidance to get their lives under control? No, but it's worthy. And once the journey begins and some of the major stepping stones and some of the major speed bumps are negotiated, it gets easier. And then at some point, it becomes somewhat sublime. And one of the, one of the things that characterizes this book, as I mentioned to you earlier, is I reflect on some of the mistakes I made. And I do that because I have a very clear intent to help my readers navigate the terrain possibly even faster than I did, Steve, or possibly more easily than I did. And I will tell you, I will tell you that how grateful I feel. I mean, my, my toes have been black and blue for years kicking those stumbling blocks out of the way. And I didn't write the book, Steve, until I felt like I had nailed the formula. And I enjoy the fruits of my labor because I became the person who you're referring to, who attracts others, who wants to come work with me. No, it wasn't easy, but it was worth it. And it got easier, and then it got sublime.
1: And you address that in your book, Chapter 18, I guess, Aligning Yourself with Success.
2: Yes, aligning yourself with success. Can you imagine going down a river, if you've ever done river rafting, and you can stiffen your legs and stiffen your arms, and every, every twig you pass or rock you pass, it can be a very uncomfortable ride. Or you can flow down the river and enjoy every turn and every little rapid. Steve, I think the book is going to help people ease themselves into a pathway that can lead to some significant rewards the rewards include oh I'd love to tell you what the benchmarks are for success it's probably a good time to tell you the benchmarks for success are the size of your commission check the size of your organization the leadership the leadership level as designated by your company your ability to persuade and influence people for their own benefit and certain lifestyle benefits that you came to achieve. Those are different benchmarks than in traditional employment. In traditional employment, what the conversation is about is what you do on the job. In network marketing, the conversation is what you're able to achieve outside of the job. And I think that's among the most important distinctions of this industry. So, in order to step into those five benchmarks, I think I nailed it in this book, Steve those inner adjustments, the shifting in thinking, the shifting in self-perception, two chapters on prosperity and money. And I talk about the operating system, about finances. Can you imagine somebody coming to network marketing to achieve financial freedom who has deeply embedded poverty scripts and how difficult that would be? I think if that person can be led to acquire a new set of authentic beliefs about how money works and how much she deserves, I think then the prize that we all come here to get is now attainable by more people.
1: Well, you put it this way in your book, I am proud to say that I am a network marketer. I am in business for myself and work closely with other business owners who are my partners. We learn, grow, train, and travel together. We inspire one another and continually share resources to help each other prosper.
2: You make me so glad that I'm doing this.
1: <laughs> well, these are your words. I'm just uh, quoting them. So you're a product of your experiences and also your own teaching.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to tell you an important decision I made in writing the book, Steve.
1: We've got about 30 seconds.
2: It's, it's non-specific to my company. It's general to the industry. And this was my way of serving a larger community.
1: Well, it sounds like a great focus, and it sounds like a great book. You, Inc. Tell us how to get it, Rosie. Tell us where we can get your book.
2: My URL is u-inc.biz. And for more information about my products and services and more information about my background, including my services and network marketing, our listeners can go to rosiebank.com
1: rosiebank.com well thank you Rosie thank you very much for being on iUniverse Radio
2: it's been a pleasure Steve thank you very much
1: that was Rosie Bank she is the author of her book You Inc own your business own your life through network marketing
0: you're listening to iUniverse Radio
3: we'll be back right after these messages Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, Noon Central on Togi Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to InspiredByFamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central, on Toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The P Word, Provence Traps and
1: Initiates the Unwary. And the author is Renee Lewis. And Renee joins us now on iUniverse Radio Huddle. Hello, Renee.
4: Hi, Steve.
1: Well, the best way to sum this up, and it's humorous, it's about relationships, it's about marriage. And I want to read what you've written in general about the book, and then we'll get into the details. And we'll talk about the unique characters You say this, there are a lot of books about France, and in particular about life in Provence. Just as there are a lot of books on French cooking, my book is different because it is centered on the humorous aspects of a relationship that has Provence as the backdrop. Why write the book, Renee? A lot of books written about France.
5: That is true. There are a lot of books written about France. and. A large percentage are written about Provence, and that's because Provence is such a a special place. Um, A lot of people, of course, have traveled there, and Peter Maley has written about uh, France and Provence too many, many years ago. I think his first book was A Year in Provence. And um, everybody has a different
4: take
5: on Provence, and and my take, as you mentioned, really is a relationship between a husband and wife who have never been to Provence and Andy Becker, the the man, uh, the husband, is trapped really by his wife into going to Provence, uh, reluctantly agreeing to go there. So the the, uh, backdrop turns out to be Provence for the relationship of this couple during the month that they spend there. And my book is um, a little different, I think. Certainly, the scenery is pretty much the same as a lot of authors have described, but the relationship between the two characters, and especially uh, Andy's way of looking at life before he travels to Provence, and then once he spends much of his uh, summer in Provence really changes him. He ends up having uh, a different view about how he's conducting his life and the ways uh, that he might change to become a more kind of a relaxed, uh, more laid back personality.
1: You take an interesting approach, obviously, as the female author. Looking at life through the male main character. Now, why did you choose to do that?
5: Well, it didn't start that way, Steve. Um, I started um, writing this in the traditional fashion of the third-person voice, and then after oh several pages, when I went back and reread everything and thought about it, I thought this has kind of a a distance um, in explaining the characters through this format and I didn't really care for it that much so I said well I'm going to change it and I'll have the story told through Margaret Becker's eyes so then I started that and after toying with Margaret Becker telling the events of their life together and going to Provence I thought "Mm, this isn't really sizzling the way I want it to Um, because Margaret was explaining so much about Andy and what she thought Andy was thinking. So I decided to flip it. And by flipping it, then I had Andy uh, tell his story and Margaret's story. And that really seemed to work. Um, There was better vitality, I would say, in the writing. And uh, everything was through... Andy's uh, eyes which gave it um, a freshness and more of a humorous approach so that's the way the book ended up um, being written through Andy Becker's eyes
1: well many people find this fascinating because you call yourself a girly girl in fact you admitted that before we started uh, this radio interview that you brushed your hair and put on lipstick for this radio interview. That's right. <laughs>
5: well, of course, I would brush my hair anyway. anyway. I, but I took special pains in brushing my hair today. <laughs> absolutely. Well,
1: well, you need to do that when you're on the radio. You have to feel That's good, right? You have to absolutely. feel good. <laughs> That's
5: it, yeah. So I I would say that people would describe me as being you know, a girly girl. Yeah. So it was kind of unusual that all of a sudden I was uh, writing... Uh, from the male viewpoint, and that was surprising to um, a lot of people. But it just seemed to work, and people have been fascinated by that, and they they like that. And a lot of um, men who have read the book have said to me, Boy, you really nailed the male perspective. So I think that's kind of an interesting aside as well.
1: Well, how did you nail the male perspective?
5: Well... I have a long relationship with men. <laughs> no, you know this sounds like it's going in another direction now. Well, I I was one of, let's see, I I had three brothers. Um, you know, I've been in co-ed atmosphere, uh, in a, a co-ed environment for a long time. Uh, I worked basically in a male profession. I was an attorney. And... Uh, and I, I like men. Uh, I've been married a couple of times. Maybe that helps as well, too. So I think all of these things went into the stew of, of life, S-T-E-W, of, of life, and uh, has uh, has kind of given me um, a particular view on the way men look at things. I realize that, you know, men are not cookie-cutter uh types of personalities were, you know, one size fits all or anything like
1: that. Provence had a great impact on Andy. Why did it have such an impact? What is so special about Provence? Sounds like a place that we all should go to.
5: Provence mm-hmm. is um, a very beautiful area. Um, a lot of people feel somewhat spiritual when they travel to Provence. It's a place where a lot of people who live in Paris go. And, uh, to get out of the city and go to the south of France and to partake of what's described as beautiful um, shadows and sunlight and gorgeous plain trees and uh, wonderful vines and flowers growing off buildings. and So it's a very relaxing place and also this very good food, um, a lot of robust type of meals. Um, are also offered in wonderful wine, country uh, uh, vineyards all over the place, and Andy found himself relaxing and unwinding in Provence, and before he went there, he, would be, he was the kind of person who was very exacting. Um, if he were going to be planting his tulip bulbs in the fall, he would take out his ruler and if the direction said plant four and a half inches below ground, Andy had his holes all dug four and a half inches below ground uh, for the bulbs. And he would scour and sanitize his terracotta flower pots before he put them away to put his flowers in in the next spring. And this is just one small thing. Then when he went to Provence, he was noticing kind of a haphazard beauty a lot of these terracotta flower pots had moss growing on the outside, and they were speckled and speckled with uh, maybe paint droppings that had never been scraped off. And, um, and a lot of the flowers that were growing in these pots were not prize winners even for the county fair, but they had a lot of charm. So this was just one small way that Andy realized that he could achieve beauty by just kind of relaxing with it all instead of trying to meet a specific standard. So there were a whole series of things like this, and also with food and traveling and getting along with Margaret during these uh, four weeks in Provence when they rented this little house, because Margaret and he had a lot of differences in their personalities, but He was able to compromise, and she was too, and so the trip was successful. So I would say that by taking a risk and going to a place that he really didn't want to go to at all in the beginning, he ended up learning more about himself, that he could enjoy himself if he just relaxed a little bit.
1: You call this a relationship story, a marriage story? a love story
3: mm-hmm.
1: now yeah. Margaret uh, is she recognizing this change that is occurring to Andy
5: um, actually I think not uh, you'd have to probably read that into the story uh, because it's not very clear if she is um, my sense is that she has not and she does not recognize it um, now a couple people said to me are you going to be writing a sequel because it will be interesting to see what happens with them and I don't have a plan for that but uh, but that's a good question no one has asked me that question before if Margaret recognizes the changes in Andy um, but I, I don't think she does, and it's funny because um, now I'm talking about them as if they are real people.
4: <laughs> <rather than laughs>
5: and, Steve, that's what happened. I mean, once I that's began right. to right. write this story, and I would go into this room, i call my boudoir, and where I would shut the door and sit on my chaise lounge and start you know, writing on my computer. Uh, After you brushed I, your hair
1: and put on lipstick
5: that's right and then i um i, w- I was looking forward to uh, to seeing what andy and margaret were going to be doing and they started to really gel as two people and you probably have heard other authors yes, say that right. their characters become real
1: to them uh, yeah the, the characters start speaking and they go oh my goodness <laughs> what did <That's> they say
5: but <laughs> right. that, that's right i mean it's really strange I, uh, I've i heard people say that occurs and I, I was really surprised that that's actually what happens it's kind of a as weird as it sounds an outer body experience in a way hmm. uh, to have these two people who are there and I could picture them and,
1: right. uh, and
5: all of this and uh, so it's, it was very interesting but um, I don't think she ever uh, during the course of the book recognizes the changes and Andy, that's why, um, because the changes, of course, always occur in any of us uh, internally before they are manifested by actions, and there might be a gap from the internal change to the actions, and um, so uh, that's why it was so important to have Andy tell the story, because we are with him on this, and we are hearing from him what he's thinking.
1: Are there any other characters that they interact with that are important to your story?
5: Uh, yes, Andy has a very good friend named Woody, and um, he and Woody are good guy pals, and that is developed um, during the first few chapters of the book. In fact. Um, as I mentioned, Andy is really reluctant to take this trip. But Margaret's the one who's enthused about going, and she pushes him into it. And one of Andy's excuses is he can't leave his dog. Andy has a dog named Spooky, and he's had Spooky for a long time. And he, you know, said, "I can't leave Spooky. Who's going to take care of Spooky?" Well, Woody, his pal, comes forward, and Woody's wife, and they end up caring for Spooky during the time that. Uh, Andy goes so but Andy and uh, Andy and um, uh, Woody have kind of a typical guy relationship they talk about sports and fishing and things like that
1: so but we get know, we Woody's important so we get to know Andy more than we get to know Margaret
5: yes for sure ah mm-hmm.
1: okay Yep. all right so uh, Margaret's
5: important to the story obviously sure but she's almost like the foil but, okay. but she's very important yeah
1: All right. Well, it looks like a visit to a, what do we call it? I hate to call Provence a tourist center, or maybe it is. Would you call it a tourist center?
4: I would say sections
5: of it are. Okay. Yes. And then uh, Provence is sprinkled with all these little tiny towns, and a lot of them are off the beaten path. And Andy and Margaret stay in a place called Sorg, and Sorg is on the Sorg River. And it's a small town, but it's known for uh, its antiques. It's an antique center, actually. But Andy and Margaret rent a car, which brings with it a whole host of problems. They travel around to all these little villages and hamlets that are uh, away from the tourists. But then they also do a lot of the tourist things, too.
1: Well, Rene, uh, we'll end up with uh, a statement that you have written. Uh, you say the P word appeals to people who have visited France, especially Provence, who want to travel to Provence, who want a light, humorous read, or want to read about a close relationship. In this case, a husband and wife with ups, downs, and compromises. Well, Rene, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, uh, the book is available from the publishing company, which is iUniverse.com. It's also available from major uh, booksellers, such as Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com, all the coms and it's available as a hardcover, softcover, or an e-book as well. And um, I have a website if any of your uh, listeners would like to take a look at that. It's just www. and then small letters, Renee Roche, R O S C H, dot com. And um, hopefully they'll be able to get on the website and read about the book and some other things of interest as well.
1: Well, thank you, Renee. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio.
5: Thank you, Steve. It's been fun talking to you.
1: That was Renee Lewis. She is the author of her book, The P-Word, Provence Traps and Initiates the Unwary.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together
2: and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
1: Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere
0: to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond
3: with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on DougieNet.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, The Boy Who Conquered Everest, and the author is Catherine Blank. And this iUniverse Radio segment is brought to you by Balboa Press. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Well, this is such an honor to have you on the show. What a story about Jordan Romero. He may be a best kept secret, but it won't be long because of your book and other things that will be going on. Jordan, who is now 14, climbed Mount Everest. Now, that is beyond comprehension for most of us as adults or. Certainly, as teenagers, can't even begin to understand how this year, May 22nd, 2010, at 9 45 a.m., he reached the summit of Mount Everest. Tell us how you got involved with him and tell us about how this Jordan's uh, dream all started.
4: Okay, I got involved with this book because Jordan and I live in the same little mountain town, Big Bear Lake, California, and uh, Jordan comes from a long line of athletes on both sides of the family, uh, but he he really came to uh, lo- the attention of local media when he was nine years old, and he declared that he was going to, uh, along with his parents, his father and his stepmother, Karen, uh, they were he was going to attempt to summit all seven of what are known as the Seven Summits, which are the, the tallest mountains on each of the seven continents in the world, and they're... they're Actually, eight of them, so uh, he set his sight on climbing all eight. And I was following his story in the local newspaper. Nobody really knew much about him outside of this region. But uh, I kept telling myself, this would make a great story. This kid is amazing, and look what he's doing, and he's got such a great attitude, and he wants to help other kids. And I thought, oh, I just kept thinking about it. But it never got beyond thought for the first three and a half years. and, And as he wrapped up his sixth summit, Uh, I told myself, oh, I've got to approach him. So I did. I I met with him and his parents and told them what I wanted to do. And he was flattered that anyone would think to write a book about him. That's how humble he is. And I set out on this journey to document the uh, climbs that he had already, uh, the summits he had attained, and his attempt at Mount Everest, wrapping up with the summoning of Mount Everest this past May, as you said.
1: Well, he started thinking about this four years ago. He was nine years old, and there was a mural in his school that showed what the the summits around the world
4: yes, these seven summits known mainly to mountaineers, people in the climbing community, but uh, of course they're becoming more well known now
1: and so here he is a third grader and, and and comes home and announces to his father that he wants to climb my wrist. <laughs> Mount Everest. That's his goal. That's
4: a- <laughs> I know. And and the thing is, he was a cle- he's a very bright kid, and he was clever enough to have, uh, he saw that mural, and then he went to the school library, and he looked up seven summits, and he did his research. He was able to come to his dad and say, Dad, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and Mount Elbrus, and Mount Nakagawa, and, and, and Mount Car- and Carson's Pyramid, and... Kosciuszko and Everest and Vincent and he had all the statistics and the facts and figures and what time of year to climb and he had it mapped out which which definitely blew his dad away
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness yes I mean you know it's one thing uh, that kids come to us with their dreams and their goals but there's probably only one Jordan isn't there
4: there's probably only one jordan and uh I, I must say that there were concerned parents uh who heard of uh, especially the when the focus came into in the spotlight on the the attempt at everest who said ah how how could anyone take their child up right. there that's that's child abuse or or <laughs> that's that's very very irresponsible yeah they're, they're like, just they trying to take understand. advantage
1: of this young boy so they can make a lot of money or something right
4: Right, they thought he was being exploited or dragged right. up there or carried up there to, for some reality show purposes. <laughs> right. But no, that's not the truth. The, the truth of the matter is that people didn't, they weren't familiar with Jordan's background. He was already climbing mountains. Uh, his, he comes from, his father is an adventure uh, racer and climber. His, his family, his grandfather, they're all mountain climbers. They're all skiers, ski patrol, athletes, all-American football. I mean, these, this is a family of jocks. They really are. And so Jordan was strapped onto a, a backpack at, when he was a few months old and going up mountains. So he, this is a terrain that's very familiar to him. And he had good people around him to train him. So it's, he, is the, he is, there's only one Jordan. I, I, and, and he's not telling people to try to duplicate what he's done. His message is really in this book to try to find your own avarice. And whatever that may be set a big goal and break it down into small
1: pieces right well that's a message to all of us at all ages obviously Uh, we all have dreams well let's turn a dream into a goal and then it may sound wild and crazy uh, to others but go for it that's what he's saying right
4: right go for it within your means within your capacity whatever your aptitude is but don't just settle or don't uh, turn away from that dream because that will come back to haunt you later. You do want to go for it. You don't have to even attain it. It's just it, the, the celebration is in the journey itself.
1: Well, in this radio interview, we certainly can't do justice to way the way you created this book. It is so different, so visual. Uh, it's really geared toward the, uh, what age group would you say, mostly?
4: Well, Whenever you publish a book, you have to have kind of a target audience, and that just helps you uh, gear it towards that audience. Everything you put into it. So I had my target was ages eight to fourteen or fifteen. Although adults are approaching me and and they're saying that this book is inspiring them as well, and they're loving the fact that it's visual and it doesn't have a lot of text. (laughs) Everyone likes to look at pictures. Right. (laughs) Lots of (laughs) pictures. (laughs)
1: Lots of outdoor pictures, lots of uh, different kinds of graphics, you know, explaining all that uh, Jordan had to do and what he accomplished.
4: Right. I wanted to take the reader along on these journeys so that they could kind of experience them in a vicarious way through the photos and really see what he was seeing.
1: Of course, we can go to uh, two different websites and see all that we're talking about. Tell us those websites.
4: Okay, uh, there are two outstanding websites. One is for the book itself, and that's just simply the title, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com, all run together, Boy Who Conquered Everest.com. That has information on the book itself. And then uh, to learn more about Jordan Romero, he has a terrific website that's always changing and updating, and that is www.jordanromero.com, and that's J O R D A N r o m e r o jordanromero.com and that'll that keeps you posted on what he's doing he has a blog he has photos he's preparing to do another uh climb this winter uh summiting Mount Vincent in Antarctica so he's always doing things great site
1: now of course to do something as monumental as this he had to find people who believed in him and not only just uh for uh, emotional support and but for money,
4: right. yes, it's very expensive. Jordan is not from a wealthy family, so uh, and that was another uh, misunderstanding. People thought that he was the, uh, just some rich kid who was uh, trying to find something to do and with his money and and uh, that's not the case. he He sold t-shirts, they had taco night fundraisers. He spoke with people from the outdoor products industry, telling them about his goals. Uh, he had to get sponsors. Most of his sponsors were from the industry itself, and a lot of the, the sponsorship was simply equipment donations. So it, it was a they had to take out personal loans, and it was a struggle. And then just as he was about to summit Everest, two sponsors had their own financial difficulties, I guess, and they pulled out. So it was oh a, down to the wire. It was really for them, one minute on, one minute off but yes, very, very expensive Um, and he did he he went around to every place, every company, every individual he could and told them about his dream and he did, he found people who believed in him and companies who believed in him
1: Now in preparing for Everest he climbed how many mountains and on how many different continents?
4: He climbed six um, starting in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro at the age of 10 And then he continued on, and he climbed... uh,
1: And that's 19,000 feet. Ten years old, climbing 19,340 feet.
4: (laughs) Right, And, and everybody kept telling him, slow down, pace yourself. But he just, he was so prepared. He'd been training like a wild man for this, and so he was in great shape. And uh, he was actually leading the expedition up, and the people, especially the, the Tanzanian guides, they just fell in love with him.
1: Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> he
4: was their little hero.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. So he went from Mount Kilimanjaro, and then what else?
4: Well, he continued on. The second, the second summit was Mount Kosciuszko, which is it's a very funny one. Uh, it's not a very tall mountain. It's in Australia, but it is tallest, the tallest peak on the continent of Australia. So... There is a thing in mountain climbing, uh, a dispute over the seven summits and whether that is, uh, truly uh, qualifies or not. So in order to dispel any argument, Jordan said, nope, let's climb it. So actually, uh, it'll end up being a total of, when he finishes Antarctica. article, the eight that he's done. But that, that way he's conquered all seven summits without question. So Kosciuszko, and he did that in 2007, Then he went on to Russia, to Europe, Mount Elbrus. Elbrus is the tallest uh, summit in Russia, and that is 18,500 feet. He did that in July of 2007, one day before his birthday, which was made a special birthday. Then his fourth summit was Mount Akingagua, and that was nearly 23,000 feet, and that is a brutal mountain.
5: Uh, Many
4: people die on that mountain. Many expeditions don't even make it to the top because of the wind. Uh, the winds can reach up 110 miles an hour, and with ice crystals, and they've blown people off the mountain. So he 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 had to get a special permit for that because he was technically too young. But he was able to demonstrate that he was in shape and had the mental and physical capabilities and the training to do it. Uh, it also helped that his father Paul is a medic trained in uh, wilderness medicine, and uh, so he's you know he had really good support. So he uh, completed that summit in December of 2007. Then he went on to Mount McKinley, which is also known as Denali, in the state of Alaska in the U.S. That's 20,320 feet, also a very dangerous mountain certain times of the year. But they were very strategic in planning the the date of their their, uh, expedition and their climb. He summited that in June of 2008. Then they went on to the tropics to Papua New Guinea, and he summited uh, the Karsten's Pyramid, which is uh, 16,024 feet. That is the one, the other of the two controversial summits, because this one is on the uh, technically considered the Australian continental shelf, so it's a separate landmass from Australia. So you see where the, the technical uh, arguments go back and forth with that. So he went ahead and climbed that one, which was solid rock, he left rainforest at the bottom and ended up in just freezing rain at the top. <laughs> totally different climate. Completed that September of 2009. And then he was planning on going to Antarctica, but he was considered too young. They denied him a permit. So he said, okay, we'll do that later. And he went on to Everest.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: on to Everest. at. Uh,
4: on to Everest. That's what, t-
1: 29,000? Is that the... Yes, yes.
4: 29,000 feet. 29,035 is the latest recorded one, although...
1: With winds that could get up to 100 miles an hour and temperatures that could be 40 below.
4: And Mount Everest is... It's not a solid... You know, you think of it as this mountain that's going to be there forever. Mount Everest is actually crumbling. It is eroding and crumbling and melting. And so he had to deal with uh, collapses of entire ice which are huge columns are melting and falling. Uh, the rock itself is, is decomposed, and it crumbles. Uh, huge chunks of it will come down. If the climber above you has a toehold and it breaks loose, a piece of rock the size of a suitcase can come straight at you. Uh, yeah, he had the, to deal with a lot, and the weather is the number one factor because technically uh, Everest is pretty mapped out in terms of how to summit, how to climb it, and he went on the north side from Tibet Tibet slash China Uh, but yeah the weather But but the whole secret of climbing Everest is that you have to find what's called a weather window which are these little breaks that come just from mid-April to late May and then that window closes up and once it closes up you can still try to summit it but it's it's extremely dangerous and his family didn't want to put him in any kind of danger other than what he would expect normally on Everest which is uh, risky enough
1: So again, on May twenty-second, two 2010, he reached the summit, 13 years young. And as you write, there's only one Jordan Romero. Not only is he a world record setter, but he lives to inspire other kids to achieve big goals and dreams. Well, that kind of sums it up. I guess what really I'd like to just end on is a quote that you have in the book. The first man to climb to the summit of Mount Everest in 1953 Sir Edmund Hillary, and what did he say?
4: He said, it is not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves.
1: That's really what Jordan is all about, isn't he?
4: Yes, he, yeah, that sums it up beautifully.
1: Well, tell us how to get your book, Catherine.
4: Well, this book, The Boy Who Conquered Everest, is available uh, through directly through Balboa Press. It's also available from Hay House, which is the, kind of the co-publisher. And, uh, of course, the uh, uh, online, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Orders.com, etc., as well as uh, available for an order through your local bookseller.
1: Well, thank you so much. My goodness, what an inspirational young man and what an inspirational story. Thank you for investing of yourself and making us aware and giving us So much to think about, and this is only the beginning, I'm sure. There's going to be much more from Jordan.
4: It's only the beginning, yes, definitely. Not only will he he continue to climb mountains, but he will continue to inspire others uh, to live healthy lifestyles, to get outside, get together with their families, and do activities together. That's what he's all about.
1: Thank you, Catherine.
4: Thank you. Take care, Steve.
1: That was Catherine Blank. She is the author of her book, The Boy Who Conquered Everest. And this interview is brought to you by Balboa Press.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.